This is Our American Stories, and we love to celebrate just about every aspect of American life. And there's no more aspect more central to American life than the car, but also laughs. And Americans love to have fun, and they love to have fun with all kinds of toys. And sometimes they just love to have fun at a comedy club, too. And if America's created something better than almost anyone else in the world, it's the automobile, and it's the comedian. And what do you know? Back by popular demand... Comedian Adam Ferrara, he played Chief Needles Nelson in the Emmy-nominated FX series Rescue Me, one of our favorites in our family, and on Showtime's Nurse Jackie. He's also been on the big screen and the big stage, but perhaps his coolest job has been hosting Top Gear U.S., testing, racing, and braking all kinds of wheeled vehicles. Adam is also a touring comedian. Go to adamferrara.com to see if he's coming to a town near you, and whatever you do, don't give him your car keys. Adam it's great to back. Great to have you back on, and t- let's talk about your life in the fast lane, if we could. How are you? I'm good, pal. I'm just I'm visualizing Sammy Hagar in that rubber suit from the I Can't Drive '55 video because you just you just stuck the song song in my head. Yeah, we can't. We're sorry to do that to you, and that's a picture you're going to have to either get out of your head or get past through this interview. No, that's a great that's a great driving song. No, it right. is a great driving song. Very often, though, they're great songs to drive through. But the actual human beings, I mean, I love ZZ Top, but, I, you know, the, the picture of them in my head is not necessarily inspiring. They're not the handsomest band in the world, but my goodness, they are the fiercest <laughs> band in the world. There's a great story. Um, you watch Live from Daryl's House. Oh, uh, yeah. Daryl Hall. Yep. So the ZZ Top episode with Billy Gibbons, who, another, another monster car guy. Yep. Um, he, uh, he said, uh, he, they picked up his guitar and he goes, these strings are really light. And Billy Gibbons said, I used to have the heavy strings. And then I met B.B. King, and his was light. And I said, B.B., why are your strings so light? And he said, I don't want to work that hard. Because <laughs> <laughs> you bend the string, if you hear that tone that Stevie Ray Vaughan used to get, he had a wound third string, which is, gives it that big, full, rich sound, but it's a pain in the ass to bend. You bet. Um, I play guitar. It's like, I, I, I don't know. Let me clarify. I play bar band guitar. I, like, know the beginnings of every great song. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was, uh, and I saw his Cadzilla too, uh, Billy Gibbons, uh, Peterson Museum took me into the basement and they had Cadzilla down there, which had, I'm going to say a 47, I could be wrong, caddy, he put suicide doors on, but, uh, yeah, that was really cool. You know, those guys make, make a racket with a little tiny band. I mean, it, it's three guys and they, they make a racket and there's not, there's nothing quite like a, yeah. a ZZ Top the show. Three guys- yeah, three guys. I mean, that that seems to be the magic number. That's, and our show is three guys. And I spoke to uh, our show, meaning Top Gear. I spoke to uh, Andy Wilman when we first did the show. Andy Wilman created the uh, format for Top Gear with Jeremy Clarkson, uh, and that's the one we know. And we're that's the mothership. And when we did our first season, we did a press event with them in London. He said three is the right number. He said, you know, two is just you know a couple. Four is too many. Three is a gang, and it leaves room for the audience to be in there with you. Yeah, well, the audience is the fourth. The audience is like that fourth person, but three is just you get some dynamics with three that you don't get with two. You know, that actually leads Mm -hmm. me to something, Adam, because you're a car guy, but you're also a comedian. Mm -hmm. And we're we're coming up upon Abbott and Costello, an anniversary. And there was a time when two-man comedy used to be really big, and you had Nichols and May. And and what, Mm -hmm. what happened to that? format did 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 one day everyone say i'm just a solo act what happened to the two man i don't i i think it, well, it came from vaudeville from what i you know from my uh, my understanding so yep. they, they were vaudevillian comedians so they uh then then um tv comes in and right well then they were on radio together so it went from vaudeville to radio 
Um, and uh, their show was so popular, uh, it became, uh, I think once something gets popular, then the format is duplicated. You know, it's like our show. Um, they, they, I think, uh, I don't know what the first comedy team was, um, but I think once that got popular, um, everyone started doing it. And, yeah, I don't uh, think, I don't think so either of the Smothers that. Brothers would have been any, anybody or anything, but together... It was yeah. brilliant. It was brilliant. It was also, that was also what you did in my, I grew up on Long Island, and then that was Sunday mornings. You wake up, um, and you go out and you play football. Then 11.30, the Abbott and Costello movie was on. Yep. And then 1 o'clock was kickoff. That's right. Um, and it was great. And it was, it was full. You, you, you played football because your father told you you had to rake the lawn. So you got the lawn done by, everything done by 11.30 so you could watch the Abbott and Costello movie. Uh, it, was, it was great. I mean, you, you see the stuff that they did. It's still burned into my memory, the... Uh, the, the the writing was great. I mean, who's on first is just brilliant. That was in the Naughty Niners movie. Yep. Um, then there's the math. I think in the Navy when they they did the math thing where he uh, Abbott adds up uh, uh, on a chalkboard. He's, ad, he's adding up math and and Costello has his own math. Oh right, um, right. And then they just start. I also love the craps table um, scene where 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 Lou pretends he doesn't know anything about Joe. craps, and then he's saying yeah. Little Joe when he knows every damn crap variation there is in yeah. the history of craps. And it is yep. it's, clubhouse. <laughs> that's right, clubhouse, box cards. Well, we're talking to Adam Ferrara, and and of course uh, you know him from Top Gear. But Adam is also a comedian and an actor. Hey, let's talk about uh, some of the cars because I love talking about people's people's cars. But right. w- if you had to choose a car for your mom, let's forget your favorite mm-hmm. car. What would you get your mom? One car. Well, my mom wants a. Ca- my mom's always had a Cadillac. That was a thing for my dad. My dad, I think it was. It was an obtainable, um, it was a, a lot of obtainable wealth, but obtainable status. You know, he could, my mother always had a Cadillac. He, that, that made him feel good. It was like, you know, look, take care of your family. My, my wife will drive a Cadillac, he, and my father would drive. That was the good car. Yep. He had the truck, he would go to work, and she had the Cadillac. They were used, but they were all well cared for. Uh, and I remember the first memory I had, of the first Cadillac we got was a 1970 Coupe de Ville that uh, that ugly olive green mm-hmm. and my mother flipped the cigarette out the window and it went to the back seat and burnt out the back seat <laughs> and that, that way that's back the when the whole seat was one strip that long strip yeah, it was just one piece so we, we wake up in the morning and there's smoldering smoke coming out <laughs> like this black smoke coming out of the car is like uh-oh the car has not elected a pope yet so smoke coming out of the car my father came out we put the fire out we took the seat out and we figured out that we can get lengths of pipe from the trunk all the way through the, uh, the, the bucket seat, and, and then it would rest under the dash. So that burnt-out Cadillac became the plumbing truck. Well, Adam Ferrara's got a lot of car stories. We're going to talk about comedy, too. He opened for George Carlin once, and we did a great hour-long celebration of the life of George Carlin here on Our American Stories. And when we come back, more with Adam Ferrara. This is Lee Habib. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all that we do.
This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Bruce Springsteen's version of his own song. He shipped it off to a great R&B singer, as you all know, who did a pretty good job of turning it into a number one song. But this is a Springsteen composition, and he kills it when he's in concert. Clarence used to step in and fill that great stack sax solo. And we're talking to Adam Ferrara, and he was just talking to us about a story in which his mom torched her own family Cadillac. Uh, let's, fe- yeah. let's hear the rest of that story, Adam. So she burns out the back seat. Pop and I pull a seat out. We figure we can get links of copper pipe in and, del- and run pipes to jobs and put the tools in there. And that actually became a plumbing truck. So I took my road test in that car, and my father told me he took me out to practice in the car. And I took so I the, the, he tells me to be careful. He goes, "All right, listen, you're doing good, you're doing fine. Don't slam on the brakes because the torch is going to come back and hit you in the head." Okay, so that's a good tip to know. <laughs> I pulled up to uh, to take my road test in this car, and it still smelled like acrid smoke and and plumbing tools. And the guy looked at I think he just passed me just to get me out of there. And the guy parallel park. I'm like, well, there's no car. Make believe. Just do it. Okay. I had a buddy. I'll only say his first name, but his name was Anthony. His father was a little mobbed up, and he would get a new car every two years. And I always wondered what happened to the cars. And one day I found out. We're in Brooklyn. We're visiting some of his relatives. And he says, come on, we're going to go over to Sheepshead Bay. I got to get rid of my car. And I go, what do you mean you got to get rid of your car? And he goes, just come and watch. And he took it, and he brought it in an empty parking lot, and he torched it. (laughs) And I thought, only in Brooklyn, New York, do people get rid of their cars by simply setting them on fire. (laughs) Yeah. We went to drive my my friend Richie, uh, Richie Minervini, who was the godfather of Long Island Comics. He gave us all our start. He owned the comedy club. And he likes Alantes. So there was a guy next to him had an, had an Alante. He took it for a ride. He was selling it. So we took it for a test drive. Uh, and we're on Hempstead Turnpike. And he comes to the screeching stop. And he looks at me and goes, oh, thank God we didn't hit me. Boom! And the guy rear-ends him in the car. <laughs> so we bring the car back to the guy who was a little, a little he, he knew some, he was a little mobbed up. So we bring him back to the car. He goes, hey, well, listen, we'd like to buy the car, but that big dent in the back. He's like, what dent? And the guy came out. He goes, oh, my God. He goes, I'm so sorry. He goes, nah, you did me a favor. He called, he goes, guys, take care of this. He came out, he took the doors, he like took the doors off, he wrenched the thing, he, he banged it all up, he called the insurance company, he goes, you just made me money. <laughs> you know, I'll never forget, I was watching 60 Minutes about two years ago, and it was the young Gotti talking about what it was like to be the son of John Gotti. And he told this story about how a dentist had mistakenly had an accident and killed one of the young Gotti cousins like a 14-year-old kid. Uh, it was just an accident. And some... On the bike. Yeah, on a bike. And so some wannabe mobster decided that the best way to prove his bona fides to, to Mr. Gotti was to make the dentist disappear. And the dentist disappeared. Mm-hmm. And Gotti got really mad. Like, you don't go killing dentists? But the guy killed yeah. the dentist. And he said that was his great... That was the thing that ate away at him the most, is that, that, that those mobsters didn't just kill bad guys. Every once in a while, they just killed anybody they felt like it, Adam. And I think if you've grown yeah. up in Long Island or around Brooklyn, you've met these guys, mm-hmm. and you know they're, they seem fun until one second they're not. I want to talk about, we came in with Pink Cadillac, and you know, that's, mm-hmm. I think, Springsteen's ode to the car as escape and also the car as a romantic outlet for young people and older people. Uh, talk about your first car, your first great date or love. Well, the Caddy was the first car, and that didn't last too long. Uh, but the first car that I got uh, in my family, we had this thing in our family called the Dead Relative Inheritance Program. 
So my father, my grandfather passes away, and he had just bought an 81 Dodge Aries K, which is crap with a K. Oh, it is. All and the K the, cars. Oh, it was terrible. But that's the car I got, and it was brand new. I mean, because he had just he yep. bought it. I mean, it had less than 10,000 miles on it when I got it. And, uh, and, you know, that was my car. It had velour interior. It, had, it was white. It was a two-door SE coupe. It was terrible. It, but it still smelled like the Denoboli cigars you smoked. <laughs> so I would drive that to school. Yep. And I would park it in the teacher's lot because it looked like a teacher's car. So I remember I wanted, to sell, I wanted to sell it to my math teacher. He wanted to buy it. My father goes, you're not selling the car. Because he knew I would buy something. You know, I'd buy a 67 GTO exactly. and it would sit driveway and leak oil. Yeah. And, um, and you'd wrap it around a telephone pole in no time. Probably, yeah. Probably. Hey, so, let's 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 talk about drivers in New York, uh, and and your thoughts about New York drivers as opposed to drivers in other parts of the country, as you've traveled around the country touring as a working comedian. Well, it's Death Race Two Thousand in New York because the lines on the road are just a suggestion. <laughs> yeah. You know, you got to get where you're going. <laughs> uh, and it's, and there's too many people, and especially in the city. When I first drove in the city, and my first comedy car when I started doing comedy was a I had an '85. Ford Thunderbird Turbo Coupe uh, with a five-speed. So I had a manual transition cutting through New York City. I was like, and that, I had no blood in my left leg for about three years because <laughs> uh, of the clutch. Oh, but yeah. that car was great. I mean, the fuel filter went, the headliner started falling apart. But it was, it was a fun car. You know, it was fun to drive, and I put a, a ton of miles on it. Um, the only thing I, I didn't like about the car is the, that had the keyless. You remember the, the keyless? You had the touch pad on the side of the uh Yep, combination yep. on the side of the door. Yep. Well, after a while, the numbers you use wear off, so it's not that hard to figure out what the combination is. <laughs> exactly. It's really <laughs> stupid. Uh, so, know? so tell me this. You worked, uh, you, you, you worked and are a working comedian, uh, and you mm-hmm. once opened for George Carlin, and we just did an hour on Carlin. And oh, you, yeah. You, you, could, you can't describe to people the brilliance, but if you're opening for a guy like that, First of all, what are you learning every night? But second, what's it like to, to start out opening for a legend? First of all, the audience wants to hear Carlin, not you. But Oh, yeah. Well, here's what happened. I was supposed to headline the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach. It's a great club. Yep. Um, and it's set up like a little theater. So my manager calls me and said, uh, listen, they got to they gotta move you a weekend. I go, what? He goes, yeah, but they gave you the option if you want to open. And right away, the ego kicks in. I'm not opening. What friggin' carnival act? What sword swallow thing? I'm not opening for anybody. <laughs> right. And they're like, who do, who do they want me to open for? They're like, George Carlin. I'm like, does he need a ride? <laughs> <laughs> I'll pick him up. So, of course, I took the gig. So, I went on. The, the MC goes up. I went up. I did my, my, my 20 minutes or whatever the hell I did. I walk off stage, and there's this little man standing right in the, in the, in the darkness, right by, in the wings. And he went, you're funny. And I went, and you're Carlin. <laughs> <laughs> And we just started talking, and he missed his intro. He was talking like, he goes, I like that Dick Clark joke you did. Like, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> no, he, and I'm, I'm just talking to him, and all of a sudden they introduce him. The crowd goes up, and he looks at me and goes, is that me? I go, it ain't me. And he ran on stage, and he was late. Um, and uh, I went home, and my wife was with me after the show, and he took pictures. We continued talking after the show. Just so gracious, so nice. And he goes, all right, all right, kid, I'll see you tomorrow. And I went. I went home and I was elated. I was telling my wife, Carlin, just watched my whole set. And then I realized, Carlin just watched my whole set. I can't do any of that material again. Right. Nine specials. I'm not going to do the same thing again. So now I'm in, a, I'm in this anxiety-ridden thing going through my notebooks, 
torture my wife playing the game called Honey Is This Funny. Right. And I had to put a whole other set together. Oh, that's torture. Um, and, the, and the same thing happened the next night. I did it, did the set. I walked off in the wings. He goes, funny again. I go, you're still calling. And we just started talking. <laughs> so sweet. He took pictures with me. And that was right before he did his last special. You know, it, um, you know it, I'll tell you something, though. He passed away after that, so I'm you, glad I actually got a chance to you, connect with him. You are lucky to have connected with him, and I, I'd heard that about Carlin all the time. My sister was a house singer at Catch a Rising Star after Pat Benatar got her gig. And what was amazing... Oh, you know Newman. You know Ralph. Oh, of course, of course. And, and, yeah. and, and Robin Williams was a sweetheart. He would come in there and work his material before he would go on Carson. He'd come in three, four nights in a row, five. And let me tell you, it was the same thing. Like my sister would sing a song or two. He would walk over and say, nice song. He'd sit and listen to the other comics. He would tell them he really liked them and knew he had some issues. But he didn't take it out on people around him. And it's so nice. You are so lucky to have had that time with Carlin and that you met an actual human being who was a comic and an entertainer because so many of the entertainers, and as you know, so many of the comedians, just have really, really troubled lives. They don't really have time to yeah. encourage a young comedian. But what a, what a thing that was for you, Adam, to have George Carlin listen to your set and tell you you were funny? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and quote a joke. He goes, that's a great joke. I mean, to have that. And Richard Pryor did that for me, too, at the uh, American Comedy Awards. I got nominated a couple of times at the American Comedy Awards out here in L.A. And uh, they show a clip, and uh, Pryor's at the table next to me. He was in the wheelchair then. Um, and, uh, and I, my friend, Mary Ellen Hooper pushed me to go up and say hello. Cause prior to me was, you know, that's what really just really moved me. Yep. And he goes, you're never going to get an opportunity again. And I worked through my anxiety with Mr. Pryor. It's a pleasure. Just to, I just want to shake your hand and tell you, thank you. He goes, I saw your clip. You're funny. <laughs> that's awesome. That is, How great is that? that is just, you know what? It's nice to maybe hit that height where you're no longer competing with other guys and you can just be generous, Adam. You're not, you don't care anymore about other people. You, you're happy to compliment them. This is Lee Habib. We've been speaking with Adam Farrar and, and he's a terrific stand up and you've seen him in all kinds of TV shows. And of course, well, you've seen him in one of our favorite car shows. And Adam, thanks so much for joining us. AdamFerrara.com is where you can go to see if he's coming to a town near you. can come true, it can happen to you if you're young at heart. For it's hard you will find to be narrow of mind if you're young at heart. You can go to extremes with impossible dreams. You can laugh when your dreams fall apart at the seams. And life gets more exciting with each passing day And love is either in your heart or on the way Don't you know that it's worth every treasure This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the one and only George Burns singing an American classic. And he was an American classic. An American comedian, actor, singer, and writer. He was one of the few entertainers whose career successfully spanned vaudeville, radio, film, and television. And he passed away on this day in history. In 1996, he was 100 years old.
His arched eyebrow and cigar smoke punctuation became familiar trademarks for over three quarters of a century. He and his wife, Gracie Allen, appeared on radio, TV, and film as the comedy duo Burns and Allen. George Burns was born Nathaniel Birnbaum on January 20th, 1896, in New York City, the ninth of 12 children born to Dora and Eliezer Birnbaum, Jewish immigrants who had come to the United States from Eastern Europe. And what we love to do here on this show is have you hear from the people themselves about their craft, about their life. Here, George Burns says that he always had a sense of humor. I always started with a sense of humor. I knew, um, in other words, even when I sang with the Pee Wee Quartet, when we were kids, I always had sort of a natural sense of humor. And uh, there's a lot of things I was able to get. I was able to get laughs on the street, but not on the stage, you know? I was self-conscious about, about being funny on the stage and uh, on the street corners. Um, or uh, if I'd play, uh, not play, but I'd be invited to some, somebody's house to a party. I was, uh, I was very good at sociables. Burns preferred to shoot from the hip and was the kind of guy who would have done and did do anything to stay in show business. Prepared stuff was hard for me to do. In other words, it's hard for a lot of people to do. A lot of people are very funny if they don't. If it's not, they don't have to stick to the words. And if you got to stick to the words, it's a, it's a different ballgame again. I did anything to stay in show business. If it had to be a single, I'd do a single. I wouldn't stay, you know. And, and uh, then if it had to do a, if I had to do a two-act, I'd do a two-act. Or if I had to sing with a quartet, I sang with a quartet. If I had to work with a seal, I worked with a seal. I wanted to stay in show business. And he did. And what is a comedy straight man? Because he was one of, if not the best. Here's what Burns had to say about the role he played in comedy. Anybody can be a straight man. If you've got good ears and if you can hear, you can be a straight man. In other words, the comedian gets a laugh. And when you see the laugh, at the tail end of the laugh, you step into, the, in, into your next question. So if you hear well, you can be a straight man. You've got to just wait for laughs. Straight man just repeats questions and the comedian gets the laughs and you just wait for them. And don't let them die completely, but overlap your straight line into the tail end of the laugh. Indeed, timing is essential for the straight man. Burns continues with the role of a comedic straight man, his use of his cigar in timing jokes, and gimmicks that he says everyone uses. Well, I've been smoking ever since I've been 16 years old. How I started smoking, I thought if I smoked, I'd look like an actor if I smoked the cigar. So I started smoking cigars when I was 16 and got used to cigars, and I've been smoking them ever since. I use a cigar, which you know I do, you know. And uh, I basically use it for timing purposes. So if I tell a joke, I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, if I think the joke is funny, if the audience laugh, I smoke as long as they laugh, and when they stop laughing, I again take the cigar out of my mouth and start my next joke. So... Um, uh, the difference between a, 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 a monologist and and a straight man is that the monologist, uh, the, you, you've got no help. You've got to get up there on your own feet. You've got to tell your jokes and you've got to time up and you've got to wait for them. And while other people haven't got cigars, let's say Jack Benny doesn't work with a cigar. Well, then he folds his arms or he touches his face or he looks at an audience. Everybody has some little trick that they usually do. And... Uh, Milton Berle, for instance, laughs it up at the end of a joke, you know. 
and everybody has something, some little gimmick. They don't even know they've got it, but it's there. So true. And here, George talks about the most important act he ever developed, the act between him and his wife, otherwise known as Burns and Allen. The audience really finds the character for you. See, because when we first went to do this act, I had all the funny jokes, and Gracie had these, the straight stuff. But even her straight lines got laughs. Her delivery, she had a funny kind of delivery. She was very sharp and quick and, and, and cute. And they laughed at her straight lines and didn't laugh at my jokes. Because she'd ask me a question and they would laugh, and while she was, and I didn't expect to laugh there, so I would answer her. While I was answering her, I'd talk in on her laugh. So nobody heard what I had to say. But I knew right away that there was a feeling of, of, of something between the audience and Gracie when, they, when I first met him. Speaking of his wife and comedy partner Gracie, here's George talking about the first time he met and eventually married her. I'll never forget I was uh, playing the Gem Theater in San Francisco, and my name then was Smiling Frankie Davis. In smart songs and syncopated pattern. My opening number was, The birds are sweetly singing and perfume flowers are bringing and the wind is worn as passing by. <laughs> by. I love to sing. And after my opening song, I looked out in the audience and I spotted Gracie sitting in the tenth row. This wasn't hard to do. She was the only one left. So I leaned over the footlights and I thanked her for staying and she said, now you can do something for me. Help me with my dress, it's caught in the seat. <laughs> I did and that night we had our first date and I was short of money and I went out to see the manager and I walked into his office and I says, how do you do? I'm smiling Frankie Davis, how did you like my act? And he punched me right in the mouth. <laughs> From then on I was known as plain Frankie Davis. <laughs> Anyway, three years later, we were married in Cleveland. And um, I'll never forget, after giving the, uh, the uh, Justice of the Peace $5, I asked Gracie, um, no, I gave him $2. Yeah, that's right, $2. Huh. Still owe Gracie $3 change. <laughs> uh, I asked uh, Gracie where she'd like to spend her honeymoon. And she says, oh, I don't know, ask my sister Bessie where she'd like to go. <laughs> so I had a talk with her. I explained to her that the honeymoon was more fun if there were just two people. And I convinced her. And she and Bessie wrote me from Niagara Falls every day. <laughs> and that's classic George Burns, a storyteller, self-deprecating, great timing, and he's so right. Gracie had it. She had that timing, and he stepped aside, and he set her up, and he made a living setting her up. When we come back, more on the life of George Burns. 100 years old, he died in 1996. And again, one of the greats, one of the greats who spanned every, every aspect of the entertainment industry, vaudeville, radio, film, television. Of course, 1977, the movie, Oh God!, where George Burns, of course, and only George Burns could play God with John Denver. 
co-starring. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of George Burns, who passed away on this day in history in 1996. Prepared stuff was hard for me to do. In other words, it's hard for a lot of people to do. A lot of people are very funny if they don't. That it's not. They don't have to stick to the words. And you got to stick to the words. It's a. It's a different ball game again. I did anything to stay in show business. If it had to be a single, I'd do a single. I wouldn't stay, you know. And, and uh, then if it had to do a, if I had to do a two act, I'd do a two act. Or if I had to sing with a quartet, I sang with a quartet. If I had to work with a seal, I worked with a seal. I wanted to stay in show business. This is Our American Stories, and we're talking about George Burns, who passed away on this day in history in 1996 at the age of 100. And as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. There's no finer place in America to study all of the finest things in life, arts, history, philosophy, the Constitution, and my goodness, sports is at the center of life there, too. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, if you've gone to college or if you have kids, if you're homeschooling, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. They've got 17 terrific courses available for free for absolutely nothing. Just sign up, go to hillsdale.edu, and enjoy with the family. And now we return to the Burns and Allen story. Burns and Allen first made it to radio as the comedy relief for band leader Guy Lombardo which didn't always sit well with Lombardo's home audience. In time, though, Burns and Allen found their own show and their own radio audience, first airing on February 15, 1932, and concentrating on their classic stage routines plus sketch comedy in which the Burns and Allen style was woven into different little scenes. And here's George Burns with his bride, Gracie, performing their act in this vintage live radio comedy routine, about Gracie's family. I must tell you what happened at our club meeting today. All oh, of us girls... you mean girls... the Beverly Hills Uplift Society? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, sure. All of us girls were sitting knitting backless sweaters for the soldiers, and Tootsie Sandwell uh, came minute. in... Wait a minute, backless sweaters for the soldiers? Well, yes, they asked us to knit sweaters for the boys up at the front. <laughs> well, for a minute, I thought you girls were doing something silly. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway... Tootsie Sagwell came in and told us a very sad story. A bee sting nearly ruined her whole life. A bee sting? Yes. Her face got all swollen and she met a wonderful man and he was all ready to propose and then the swelling went down and her face returned to normal and he gave her up. Well, poor Tootsie, if there had to be a face like hers, the best place for it is on a body like hers. Oh, yeah, well, Tootsie's a very nice girl. And I can't understand why men don't like her. Well, men ought to love her. Heaven knows she looks like a man. Here, Burns describes what ultimately decides what makes any given act a hit or a flop. You don't start out to be a hit. There's no such a thing like that. You don't get up in the morning and say, the 5th of January at 10 minutes after 2, I'm going to be a star. It's ridiculous. You must love what you're doing, and and you go out there and you do it. I had no idea of... of, of, uh, getting as far as I did get in the show business. See, I, I never, you never plan, you can't plan these things, and, and you've got nothing to do with it, it's the audience. 
As I said before, the audience made me find the character for Gracie, and it's the audience that make you a star. They, uh, even if you don't want to be, you've got to be. They, they say, that's it, that's what we want, and that's what we like, and, and uh, they're the ones that, uh, that, uh, that do it. Like all comedians, George Burns would often repeat and recycle his comedy routines day after day to earn money. Here, George talks about how he approached different audiences with the same material. You just go out, you've got your life savings, which is 17 minutes. Now, if they laughed, it would spark you and you would give a good performance. But a lot of times, the same act that was a riot at night wouldn't do well in the afternoon. It was very hard to, very hard to touch anything. There's nothing you can lift up. All you've got is the delivery and an attitude. And the audience would either defeat you or you'd be a sensation. But then when you got to be good, you got above your audience, and the audience couldn't defeat you. In other words, you got to the point where... Uh, where uh, see, if you got $400 a week, you could be defeated by an audience. But if you got $2,500 a week with the same act, the audience couldn't defeat you. So true. Burns would always personally supervise the writers for his radio and TV shows. Here... He talks about the process and his writing team and how they would use each other to form new material. When we wrote the Burns and Allen shows, the writers wouldn't bring in anything on paper. They would write it right here. Let's say three or four writers would sit together, we'd get Jack with a typewriter, it would be written right in the room. So we never had what you call rewrites. You see, when you when writers take homework home, you know, they go and they... Let's say you got a scene you want to write. You give it to two writers, you know. Now they bring in the scene, and then you've got four writers. Now you got to rewrite the scene. And sometimes there's a little resentment there because you're taking out a joke that's his favorite joke that I don't think is in character or something like that. But when you sit down at scratch, you sit down with four writers, nobody knows who said this, nobody knows who said that. And I found out that that's the best way for me to write, for what I'm doing. Burns goes on to describe why so many routines that came out of vaudeville were performed by perfectionists. What is a perfectionist? I mean, the kids that go out today and improvise, they're perfectionists too. I mean, that's the style. Vaudeville made you a perfectionist. It got to be, it sort of got to be machine-made. Because you did the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, the same thing. And, 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 and it got so that when you walked out on the stage, if you had 10 or 11 or 15 or 30 minutes, they were perfect from doing it day in and day out. And that, so that well, later on when they went into another line of business, they would, they would, at the school they came out of, like Jack Benny did the same joke for a thousand years. Now he can, of course, he's... He used to come out and say, how was the show up till now? And the leader would say, it's great. He says, I'll stop that. That was his opening joke. And believe me, it, uh, he did it for years and years and years. He could not get a different opening. He tried all kinds of openings. But he was used to it. It was comfortable. Burns remained in good health for most of his life, despite his nonstop cigar smoking, in part thanks to daily exercise, swimming, walks, sit-ups, and push-ups. He bought new Cadillacs every year and drove until the age of 93 when he stopped due to becoming so short that he couldn't see over the steering wheel. After that, Burns had chauffeurs drive him around town. In his later years, he also had difficulty reading fine print. 
On March 9, 1996, 49 days after his centenary, Burns died in his Beverly Hills home of cardiac arrest at the age of 100. As much as he looked forward to reaching the age of 100, Burns also stated about a year before he died that he also looked forward to death, saying that on the day he would die, he would be with Gracie again in heaven. Here's George Burns doing what he did best on live TV with Dean Martin. Now for my opening song. And if you like it, I'll sing another one. And if you don't, I'll sing five. Lesson, Mikey. I've been a thinking, a man named Lincoln. Dean, Dean, would you would you come out here a minute? Yes. Sir, yes. yes. Dean, I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been. George, I just want to say you're looking younger every time. Every time I see you, you look younger. Well, you don't know how happy I am to hear you say that because lately I've been getting to have my doubts. Not you, George. Well, I'll tell you, the bunch of us were sitting around the Hillcrest Country Club at that round table. There was Groucho, and there was Jag Benny, and there was, there was, there was Georgie Jessel, and Jimmy Durante, and myself. And then I took a look at us. And what's he was kidding? We did not look like the Mod Squad. Hmm. <laughs> In fact, we didn't even look like Hogan's Heroes. We looked more like Mission Impossible. George, <laughs> now... You, you know, you got, the, you got the body of a 20-year-old. I know, because I've seen her in your car. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's not true. Hmm? She's 19. Oh. Well, anyway, the bunch of us at this table, we do play nine holes of golf every day, but that's no exercise because we all rent carts and the caddies carry our bags. We ride and they walk. The caddies look great and we all look like Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> Back we're at the point now we even look bad with makeup on. <laughs> but the kids have got it made today. You know, they have love-ins and love-outs and freak-ins and freak-outs, and they wear beads, and they, uh, they read poetry, and they smell flowers. Oh, well, you, you wouldn't want to be a kid again. Oh, no, no, no. But, but I wouldn't mind being 10, 10 years younger. Or 15. <laughs> even 60 years younger, but not a kid again. Anyway, I said to these fellas, I said, instead of sitting around the table like this, let's all go to Griffith Park. Now, let's, 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 let's meet these kids. Maybe some of that youth will rub off on us, and maybe what we've got will rub off on them. If it doesn't drop off before we get there. <laughs> well, I finally convinced them, and the five of us left for Griffith Park, and not to look conspicuous. We all wore sandals and wide belts and love beads. Well, that must have been some sight. <laughs> well, Jessel wore his beads down the back because he didn't want to cover his medals. Oh, no. oh yeah. <laughs> and then Jack Benny carried his violin, and then and, and, and Groucho brought his guitar, and Jimmy Durante had an orchestration of Bill Bailey that was arranged by John Philip Sousa's father. <laughs> and and I, I wore my buckskin vest with the fringe around the bottom that Buffalo Bill gave me for my birthday. Hmm. See? I've never seen you with a fringe around your bottom. <laughs> never. Only when I play Vegas. Oh. Well, anyway, we all arrived in Griffith Park, and it was quite a thrill. It was the first time any of us got such a big laugh without saying anything. We looked like a bunch of flower children who hadn't been watered in 40 years. <laughs> then we all sat down on the grass. That took a good 20 minutes. <laughs> Groucho never did make it. We had to prop him up against a tree. And I heard that the kids nowadays smoke grass. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I took some grass, put it in my cigar holder, and I lit it. It's nothing. But that fertilizer is murder. Yeah. This is Our American Stories. An American classic, George Burns, died on this day in history in 1996 at 100 years old. As always, are this days in history brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories. stories and when our team here isn't working or eating we're reading and that's why we love having authors on this show they can tell us something about well some things we thought we knew but didn't and today we're taking a fresh look at the recent revolutions in egypt with eric traeger the esther k wagner fellow at the washington institute washington institute for near east policy and author of a terrific new book arab fall how the muslim brotherhood won and lost egypt in 891 days. And Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Eric, you were there in 2011. What did you see on the ground, and how did it compare to what we in America on our television set saw? Because all we were hearing from the pundit class, and boy, do they get things wrong a lot, was, my goodness, what excitement, what joy. This is the new Arab Spring. Talk about that. Well, I... Well, I think maybe it's helpful to just sort of tell my own personal story, because I think I think it was both hopeful, but also very scary for many people. So everyone knew that activists had called protests for January 25th, 2011. That's police day in Egypt today meant to honor the police for a major battle with the British in 1952. But activists had been using that day for a few years to protest police brutality and with the recent uprising in Tunisia at that time, they wanted to have bigger protests that would really pressure the regime. Anyway, the evening before those protests, I was with an opposition party leader, and he said to me, and, and I asked him, you know, uh, will tomorrow's protests be real? He said, yes. I said, fine, where do I stand? He said, you know, stand uh, in front of the high court tomorrow at, uh, at about 1 p.m. So at roughly 1.20 p.m., 1.30 p.m., Protests started forming. Again, this is January 25th, 2011. I'm with my roommate. Uh, the protests at first were very contained by the police, but then a few hundred protesters streamed into this area, which is about a mile north of Tahrir Square in downtown Cairo. A few hundred protesters streamed into the area from the north, overwhelmed the police, and all of the protesters converged and started pushing southward towards Tahrir Square, which is that now famous traffic circle. And they overwhelmed the police. And being there, being an American, obviously seeing people march for freedom, march against a dictatorship, was very inspiring. It taps everything that, as Americans, we tend to believe about the world, which is that all people essentially want the same thing, namely freedom. And it was, frankly, a very uplifting experience. The problem didn't end there. It wasn't 
it wasn't just about that uplifting experience. So shortly after the protesters took Tahrir Square, a few of them started, uh, I should say a few hundred, started pressing up a side street uh, to towards the prime minister's office, and they tried to occupy the prime minister's office. They were pushed back, uh, tried again, pushed back, got down to pray. And when they got up, things got very chaotic. People started throwing shoes and stones, and the police took out water cannons, uh, and, and it, was, it was becoming very chaotic very quickly. So I ducked off a side street, and I said to my roommate, look, you know, uh, this is not my uh, revolution. This is, this is your revolution. You do what you got to do, but I'm, I'm getting out of Dodge. And about a half hour later, my roommate called me from the back of a police vehicle. He was beaten. Uh, he was later released the following morning in the desert, had to hitchhike his way back to Cairo. The point is that this was not simply a glorious uprising of dictatorship, although it was partly that. It was also, for many Egyptians, a very scary confrontation with, this, with the state, a confrontation that bred chaos in many instances. And I think it's that second thing, it's the darkness of the uh, uprising and its aftermath that makes many Egyptians hesitant to go for another one. Well, and in the end, though folks didn't like Mubarak, the, the, the state, the country did function, Eric. It did function, and so a lot of folks had to worry, what next? What next? Talk about well, that's that. Exact, that's exactly right. So obviously Mubarak fell after, uh, after 18 days of protests. Um, the military responds to those protests after a few attempts by Mubarak supporters at ending them by, um, you know, by, by removing him from power. And what followed was a uh, transition in which the military ruled, then there was elections that brought the Muslim Brotherhood to power. The Muslim Brotherhood ruled in a very uh, incompetent but also exclusivist manner. The president, Mohamed Morsi, a Brotherhood leader, constantly grabbed more power, alienating a broad cross-section of Egyptians, while also alienating aspects of the state. And uh, the anger towards him and the Muslim Brotherhood, coupled with this rejection of the Muslim Brotherhood from within the state institutions, culminated on June 30th, 2013, when you had a second mass uprising, this time against the Muslim Brotherhood, and the military responded to that on July 3rd, 2013, by removing Morsi. Uh, so what you had after those kind of glorious images of Tahrir Square, which, as I'm saying, were partly glorious, but also partly very frightening for, for many Egyptians, was a very tumultuous period in which this country that had had very little politics in the previous 30 years had a tremendous amount of politics and tremendous amount of uncertainty in a two-and-a-half-year period. And what you have in Egypt today, and I'm not saying this will last forever, I wouldn't bet that it would, but what you have in Egypt today is, is a strong uh, antipathy and resistance for further upheaval. So what you have today in Egypt is a repressive police force, uh, a very bad economy, high youth unemployment. In other words, the factors that contributed to the 2011 Arab Spring uprising, I would say, are even worse today. And yet you haven't had an uprising in these past uh, three years since Morsi was removed, because people are afraid that what could come after an uprising might only be worse. In other words, they've learned from the previous six years that uprisings do not necessarily make things better. It's so true. And by the way, we've spent some time on David McCulloch's book, 1776. And my goodness, when actual real revolutions happen, 
It's scary. People have to choose sides, and you don't know what's going to happen. And frankly, the folks of Egypt did learn what happened, and they were terrified. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about the Muslim Brotherhood. Who are they? What's their mission? We're talking to Eric Traeger, and he's the author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. our American stories. We're talking with Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. And we love to get behind great books. We did it with Greg Ipps, terrific book, Foolproof, and he's the economics editor of the Wall Street Journal. We just did it with Mark Twain's Last Laugh, which you just got to get someone for Christmas who loves to laugh. And for anyone in your family who's interested in, well, all things the Middle East, national security, and just understanding this part of the world a little better, well, you've got to pick up Eric's book. And where we left off was the Muslim Brotherhood. And Eric, what is or who are the Muslim Brotherhood? What's their mission? And how does one become a member? So the Muslim Brotherhood is, a, is an insular organization. It's an Islamist organization that was founded in 1928 by a schoolteacher named Hassan al-Banna. And Hassan al-Banna was emerging in this period in which many Muslim thinkers were asking themselves the following question. What went wrong? Why did Islam fall behind the West? Why did Islam, which in the early centuries of its revelation was on the cutting edge of science and technology, which controlled much of the known world, why in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was Islam being overwhelmed culturally by the West, but also politically due to imperialism? And one of the answers that came about was that uh, Islam had fallen behind because Muslims had lost their way politically and had lost their way educationally. And to, to, to solve this problem, Muslims had to revive and uh, modernize the use of Sharia, in other words, Islamic legal concepts, uh, in their polities. So what Hassan al-Banna, the Muslim Brotherhood's founder, brought to this way of thinking, that in other words, to revive Islam vis-a-vis -vis the West, you had to revive the Sharia, is he built a specific type of organization. So um, the Muslim Brotherhood's goal is to first recruit individuals to its organization, then spread those individuals into society so that they preach the Brotherhood's message. Once that message gains substantial support, the Muslim Brotherhood would take over the state, maybe through elections, maybe through some other way. Ultimately, it was elections. And once this happened in many different Muslim states, all of these states would unify and form a global Islamic state, or what's typically known as a neo-caliphate. So what's the Brotherhood specifically trying to do, and this is actually very important, um, it interprets Islam as an all-encompassing concept meant to control every aspect of life. So what it wants to do 
is uh, interpret Islam and tell Muslims how to live and then implement that ideology at the state uh, level. Here's the problem. The problem is that Sunni Islam is very diverse and actually non-hierarchical in nature. So the second an organization comes about and says, I know how to interpret the Sharia, this is how to interpret it, this interpretation should uh, control every aspect of your life, and by the way, if you don't agree, well, you're not a good Muslim, it alienates people. And that's actually what happened with the Muslim Brotherhood, because it's so rigid, because it's so dictatorial, because it claims to have a monopoly on the understanding of Islam, other Muslims very much resented this, and that's why in a, in a 90% Muslim-majority country like Egypt, you had a rebellion against the Muslim Brotherhood um, within one year of that organization coming to power. But back to the point about recruitment, you know, becoming a Muslim brother is not like becoming a Democrat or Republican. Um, you don't simply go to the, uh, the DMV and check a box on a form. Right. It's a five- to eight-year process in which every single Muslim brother is vetted for his commitment to the cause and his commitment to the organization. And through that five to eight year process, every Muslim brother is promoted through successive ranks, almost like a military. And at every rank is tested again for his commitment to the cause and commitment to the organization. At the end of this process, every Muslim brother takes an oath to listen and obey Muslim Brotherhood leaders. So what the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to do through this process is make sure that there are no dissenters in the ranks and that every single Muslim brother sees himself as a foot soldier for the organization. And again, the whole point is so that that person is committed to spreading the Brotherhood's message in society so that the Brotherhood achieves state power and over time achieves global power for the purpose of resisting Western cultural and political influence. And this doesn't sound in some ways that much different than joining the mafia, Eric. It's certainly structured in a similar way. Um, You know, all these Muslim brothers are then uh, organized in cells that are known as families of roughly five to ten members. Um, And these families are responsible for the Brotherhood's local activities, could be handing out social services, could be preaching, could be recruitment, could be political campaigns, could be political rallies, could be trying to win power. And all of these cells uh, answer to a central chain, uh, a central leadership uh, that's based in Cairo, historically known as the guidance office. So the reason the Muslim Brotherhood was able to win power so quickly is that only the Brotherhood had the organization to mobilize around the country and in every community because those cells would all march to the uh, to the orders of that guidance office. Now, to your point about the mafia, I think that's a very useful analogy for understanding what's happened since Morsi's ouster. You know, when the FBI goes after the mafia, it doesn't go after the foot soldiers on the ground. It right. tends to go after the Don and the Kapo regimes. After Morsi was ousted in 2013, the new regime, backed by the military, similarly decapitated the Muslim Brotherhood, went after the top three layers of its leadership. So what you have now in Egypt is still probably a few hundred thousand Muslim brothers. But because that organization has been taken apart, because it's been decapitated, they can no longer function in a coherent manner. It's sort of like if you decapitate the the mafia, you'll still have criminals, but you won't have an organization that can control North Jersey 
Uh, with the Brotherhood, you still have these Islamists running around, but they can no longer, at least not in their present state, control Egypt. You bet, because they're not org- they're no longer an organized force in the end, Eric. Also, they're not operating in the same vacuum, and they had that unique opportunity, from what you're telling us, that unique opportunity in 2011 that may not come around for a long time, Eric. Well, that's exactly right. Because the Muslim Brotherhood uh, failed so spectacularly in power, because it picked fights with so many of the state institutions, because by its nature it made uh, many Muslims in Egypt feel as though they were lesser. I mean, that's the, that's the whole uh, downside to claiming that you have the monopoly on proper Sharia interpretation, um, you know, because it alienated the public, in other words, and because its rule was so tumultuous, uh, many Egyptians are not eager to reopen Egypt's politics because they fear that the Brotherhood could come back. And I just want to emphasize uh, two things. First of all, it is pretty hard to measure right now Egyptian popular sentiment because, of course, it's a very repressive uh, situation. There are no reliable polls. But also, it's important to remember that uh, you know, moods tend to change very quickly. So just because the Brotherhood is out now doesn't mean it'll be out indefinitely. And more importantly, remember that many Muslim brothers have fled abroad uh, since Morsi's ouster in July 2013. So you have Muslim brothers that have gone especially to Turkey and Qatar, but also have gone to Europe, have come to America. Um, so, you know, that's why it's very important to be aware of how this organization works and why its ideology has been so alienating for many Muslims once they get to know it. There's a real mistake in not making the distinction between Islamism and Islam, and the Brotherhood's rapid fall from power really demonstrates that many Muslims are not Islamists and will, in fact, reject Islamist rule. Indeed, and I would, I would think that just like the Mafia, and look, I had, a, I had a grandfather who was terrified of the mob. He had a pizzeria in Brooklyn. And he paid his due, and he didn't say anything bad, and he was almost forced to say they do some good here in the neighborhood because everyone was afraid of these characters. But my goodness, the ones who suffered the most at the hands of the mobsters were Italians, and they got shaken down at every storefront they owned, Eric. And and yet they, they went along because they were afraid. Some feigned belief. Others were opportunists and joined, but they didn't really believe in the mafia. It was just a job. It, it, it's, it doesn't sound that much different, Eric. Well, I'll tell you the difference. The, the one important difference is the ideological component. Yeah. Um, it's obviously true that you know every every mafioso has to go through an, an induction process and has to swear the omerta. I mean, you know, yeah. anyone who's watched The Sopranos knows that. Yeah. Um, but with the with the Muslim Brotherhood, it's not strictly about being a member of an organization. It's about subscribing to a specific set of beliefs. So what you'll find, especially when the Muslim Brotherhood is functioning effectively in a country is that Muslim brothers will effectively say the exact same thing about politics. So it's not strictly a unity of action. It's also a unity of ideology that made this, during a specific moment in time, like you said, a very potent organization. You bet. And we're talking with Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. Go to Amazon.com and order it now. More after these messages with Eric.
is Our American Stories, and we're talking with Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. And where we left off was talking about the mafia, similarities and differences. And during the break, Eric, you brought up a a profound difference between the two. Uh, Talk about ideology in the end, and also talk about the desire for wealth and not just power. Sure. So the the crux of being a Muslim brother is ideological. If you're a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, you really believe that this organization, in all its rigidity, in all of the uh, challenges that it takes to become a member, uh, that this is the way and the proper mechanism for promoting uh, Islamism, which again is this idea that the state should be based on Sharia and whose interpretation of the Sharia the Muslim Brotherhoods. Um, it's, it's deeply ideological, and many Muslim Brothers really equate their membership within the Muslim Brotherhood with Islam itself. So they see that by being Muslim Brothers, they're the best Muslims, everyone else is lesser. Again, it's that attitude that rubbed Egyptians uh, a very wrong way once the Muslim Brotherhood came to power and strongly contributed to the anger with the Brotherhood that fed the uprising against Morsi. Very different from the Mafia, where, you know, everything I've read, the primary motivation for joining the Mafia is financial and economic. Mafiosos, even at the lowest level of the, of the command chain, expect that they're going to become rich, that they might become a Don or a major leader one day, and, and you know, again, that they'll be rich. With the Muslim Brotherhood, it's a tremendous risk historically to be a member. This was an organization that was uh, pretty significantly repressed under Mubarak, even more brutally repressed right now. So it's hard to see a, uh, a financial reward. Now, it's also true, of course, that Muslim brothers tend to take care of each other. So if you're a Muslim brother and you get sick, the brotherhood will care for you, care for your family. So I'm not saying there are zero economic uh, incentives for being a Muslim brother, but it is primarily ideological. It is primarily this idea that through this organization, uh, Islam can rise again and over time fight the West. So how, for folks listening across the country here in the States, how is Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood different than Al-Qaeda, ISIS? Talk to the folks listening about the differences in these groups and also the similarities. Great. So let's just start where they're similar. All of these groups, at the end of the day, envision a caliphate. In other words, uh, a, a, a union of states that are governed by the Sharia uh, or some kind of international entity that, under almost any definition, would be hostile towards the West. That's true of the Brotherhood. It's true of al-Qaeda. It's true of ISIS. Where they disagree is on two things. First of all, they disagree in terms of how they would interpret the Sharia for law and therefore what that caliphate might look like in practice. So a group like ISIS, a group like al-Qaeda, very strict interpretation, uh, very rigid, very conservative, would probably be pretty brutal regimes. In the case of ISIS, is a brutal regime. The Muslim Brotherhood's ultimate view on what it thinks its Islamic State or its global Islamic State would look like is very, very vague. And for me, and I outlined this in the book, that was one of the great surprises, that here you had this organization that had been around for over 80 years, 
uh, trying to win power, trying to win over the Egyptian public and, of course, publics in other countries. And yet when it came to power in Egypt, it had absolutely no idea how to interpret the Sharia. It was ultimately a political organization, not an intellectual organization, not an organization that had any real policy vision, which, of course, contributed to its fall. But the second key difference between the Muslim Brotherhood and groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda is that process through which they want to establish the global Islamic State or neo-caliphate. So again, the Muslim Brotherhood wants to recruit individuals through that process I described. They then want to spread the individuals in the society so that they preach the Brotherhood's message. Over time, use that that, that societal support to win political power. And when this happens in many different states, those states will unify and establish a caliphate. ISIS has a very different view, whereas the Muslim Brotherhood is grassroots up long term. ISIS instead says, here's your caliphate. We've established the caliphate. We're going to kill now, conquer territory now, convince people later. ISIS, in other words, isn't wasting its time with recruiting individuals and spreading in the society, then, you know, trying to gain state power and ultimately global power. It's trying to gain uh, regional power right now. Um, Al-Qaeda has a somewhat similar approach in that it has never called, it has never declared a caliphate. It's never said that it has a caliphate now, but it's working towards a caliphate now by fighting the West and other uh, regional competitors rather than focusing so much on, you know, winning over populations. At least that's typically been a strategy. Uh, there are some differences uh, in, in recent years. So, so that's really the key. Now, many people will listen to what I just said and say, oh, so, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is moderate because it's trying to at least win over societal support. It's trying to go through the ballot box and only establish a caliphate once it's kind of created the base. And I think that that would be a flawed interpretation. It's unfortunately what many in Washington thought. They thought the Muslim Brotherhood was moderate because it was not like al-Qaeda or later ISIS. It's important to emphasize that these groups differ only in tactics and strategy. They don't differ in their end goal. But more to the point, you would never say that the KKK is moderate because it's not the Nazis and, by the way, David Duke runs for Senate. Right. Um, you would never say that. You would right. say, hey, the guy's a white supremacist. His ideology is radical. I don't care how he's trying to come to power. He's a radical. That's right. And that's true with the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, yes, it has a different tactical approach. It doesn't lead with violence, although it's not opposed to violence. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still seeking uh, you know, a type of Islamist supremacy that is obviously against the West, but most importantly, alienates other Muslims. And you said Islamist supremacy. Why do you think it is that so many here in the United States, leaders that is, call ISIS and call the Muslim Brotherhood and talk about al-Qaeda as if they're not Muslims, they're not real Muslims, and they're not following the Koran, that they they are somehow non-Muslims, and thus we don't need to call them Muslims, even though they themselves view themselves as Muslims. It's very confusing for folks here who think A is A, um, that folks in Washington, many of them will say A is actually B. Explain why in Washington folks think the way they think about these things. Well, I think in Washington you have this idea that in order to defeat a group like ISIS and al-Qaeda in particular, you need to distinguish them from Muslims more broadly uh, so that this way... A, you don't alienate Muslims and, and accuse them of being 
sympathetic with or parts of organizations that they oppose, and B, that you might then win Muslim allies in this fight. My argument would just be that, A, uh, it's really not for non-Muslims to say who is or, or isn't a Muslim. Right. Uh, certainly the members of these groups say they're Muslim. I'm not, I'm not in any position to contest uh, the way they see themselves. Right. But more importantly, it's superfluous. Uh, you know, as I've been saying, Islamism is not the same thing as Islam. That's something that many Muslims, and I would actually say most Muslims, probably understand off the bat. So by even raising this point and entangling ourselves within debates over who is or isn't a Muslim or what does or doesn't Islam preach, uh, we're really missing the boat. We should simply focus on these organizations, focus on their ideology, and have the confidence to know that the vast majority of Muslims reject these organizations and have actually been willing to participate with us in fighting them. Indeed, and I think it makes us look almost silly to not notice these things, because if anybody notices them, it's actual Muslims. And in the end, they're often the the greatest victims uh, of these groups. When we come back, we're going to finish up with Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. Go to Amazon.com. Order the book now. Again, it's Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. And Eric was there for the start of the Egyptian Revolution and knows of what he speaks. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and for the hour we've been talking to Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. And we're going to get into the policy implications in just one minute. But Eric, where do you see things going forward in Egypt, and how does all this, and why should all this matter to folks listening across the United States? Well, The way this is going to play out in Egypt, if you want to understand that, I think it's just really important to understand that what happened on July 3rd, 2013, when the military responded to mass protests by removing the first elected president, Muslim Brotherhood leader, Mohamed Morsi, what happened on that day was a coup. And uh, those of your listeners who intend to launch a coup in their lifetime might want to take notes on what I'm going to say next, which is uh, when you launch a coup, you're going to have to kill whoever it is, your move from power, because otherwise that group might return to power and kill you. And that's to say that Egypt today is in a kill-or-be-killed struggle between the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the military has largely won that fight. Like I said, it's decapitated the Muslim Brotherhood on at least three levels of the organization. Tens of thousands are in prison. A few thousand have escaped into exile. The organization is really not visible on the ground today. But when you're in a kill-or-be-killed struggle, and you know that there's still probably a few hundred thousand Muslim brothers out there who want you dead, uh, when you're in that kind of struggle, you never ease up, you never feel secure. And that's part of the reason this has been the most repressive period in Egypt's contemporary history. The regime simply sees 
any oppositional activity, any kind of political reform, any kind of political opening, any kind of independent organization as a positive as a possible vehicle through which the Muslim Brotherhood might be able to agitate and return to power. So this is why, by the way, when Washington has spoken with Cairo about human rights abuses, about the, uh, the, the rising autocracy, about the lack of political reform, it falls on deaf ears because from the Egyptian government standpoint, its repressiveness is necessary for its survival. And anyone criticizing that is essentially telling the government to go die. I'm not endorsing, by the way, the government's repressiveness. I think it's really sad and horrible. And frankly, I have uh, a few friends who have had to go into exile as a result, not Muslim brothers, but, you know, people who are critics of the of the regime. I'm simply making a point about, you know, how likely we are to get uh, Egypt to reform anytime soon. I think, by the way, the new administration coming in, the Trump administration, understands this pretty well. Uh, you know, Donald Trump made it clear that he was not interested in promoting democracy, that he was interested in strategic relationships with the region. And I think that's why uh, Cairo has been one of the most uh, happy capitals uh, since, uh, since Trump won. Why should listeners care about this? Well, for a few reasons. First of all, the United States is still a global power. Uh, it still has you know, bases in the Persian Gulf that are necessary for fighting ISIS to keep us safe as well as containing Iran, uh, important for protecting the stability of global oil supply. And if you want to maintain that, you're going to need a relationship with Egypt. Egypt is necessary for overflight rights, necessary for passage to the Suez Canal. It's a necessary counterterrorism partner, given its size. It's the most populous Arab country, as well as the fact that many uh, Islamist movements have sprung from Egypt. So Egypt's going to be a necessary partner to do what we want to do in the Middle East, and that makes Egypt's political stability very important for, for U.S. interests. If Egypt is unstable, you could see massive refugee flows that would make Syria uh, look, look quite small by comparison. You could see a destabilization of America's position uh, in the Middle East. You could see a rupture of the peace treaty with Israel. I mean, there, there are many possible risks. And I think that's one reason why Americans have focused on Egypt. The other reason that we should put out there is, frankly, Americans are fascinated by Egypt. You know, Egypt is obviously in the Bible. Uh, it's in our movies. It's in our culture. Uh, you know, we go to museums as kids and see mummies. We learn about Egypt when we study ancient civilization. So it's really one of the few Arab countries that all Americans have heard of that really exists somewhere in the American imagination, and it's a place that people want to visit. It's a place that people think about. Uh, I think that's why there was this attention to Egypt in a way that there was not similar attention for Tunisia or Yemen or Bahrain or even Syria, countries that also had uprisings during the Arab Spring. Only Egypt was covered 24-7, all 18 days of the uprising, with major news networks sending their top people, Anderson Cooper, Lara Logan, etc., out to Cairo. Yeah, it's so true. By the way, that story of what Lara Logan experienced in Tahrir Square was just mortifying. Could you sum that one up in case folks hadn't heard it? Because it really was something. Yeah, what happened to, to Lara Logan is that um, once Mubarak's ouster was announced on February 11th, 2011, there were, um, you know, there were obviously celebrations in Tahrir Square. She was, she was, uh, she was covering that for, for CBS. 
and uh, and she was very brutally uh, assaulted sexually. Um, and uh, and by the way, this is a this is a common uh, risk and uh, and uh, a really dark side of uh, of Egypt, frankly, that there are many sexual assault cases. Um, I think, you know, and I only have anecdotal evidence on this. It's hard to know numbers. I think this has improved a bit in recent years, um, but it's frankly been an issue for as long as I've been, uh, I've been going to Egypt. That's why, frankly, I have a great deal of, uh, of respect for the women who, who tend to cover Egypt because uh, they end up putting up with, uh, with a lot um, and much more than, than men are asked to. I mean, she was pulled away from her camera crew and essentially passed around a mob for 30 or 40 minutes and brutalized and sodomized in just unspeakable ways by not one, not ten, but she calculates maybe hundreds of men. Uh, with, with people cheering it all on, Eric, people cheering it on, uh, absolutely uh, frightening prospect for any woman going into that space. Let's just it talk. It is, and I, I just, just on that, I mean, you know, one of the things that female colleagues have mentioned to me is, you know, just how common uh, negative comments, uh, different types of assault gropings are. I mean, it is for a woman, uh, it can be a very challenging place to operate. And obviously what Lara Logan experienced was, uh, was the worst of it, you know, probably the worst case I ever heard. And to her credit, she gets right back into the hot zones. I mean, she is one courageous lady. I wanted Absolutely. to talk about one last thing, and it just has to do with the Middle East in general. And our ability as we go down the road, not putting boots on the ground, which I don't think anybody wants to do in a big way anytime soon. But how do we pick the good guys from the bad guys, Eric? How do we know who the moderates are? How do we know who to arm? How do we know where to intervene in ways that are wise and not? This has got to be the trickiest foreign policy conundrum we've ever faced. Well, the short answer, and it's a really important question, is that we we don't and we frequently can't. Um, The Muslim Brotherhood, it should be remembered, was founded in 1928. And at the time of Mubarak's overthrow in February 2011, it had a website. Its leaders were relatively accessible to anyone who visited Cairo. Uh, It put out information in English and Arabic, of course. It had social media pages. It, It had books. I mean, it, was, it had been well-studied. Yep. Um, this was an organization, in other words, that our policymakers really should have known and understood. Instead, policymakers, and I should say not just in the Obama administration, but left and right, convinced themselves that this was a moderate organization because it wasn't al-Qaeda, because it had renounced the violence, completely failing to examine its ideology, examining the way it works, examining the extent to which it's frankly a cult and a totalitarian one at that. So my argument is, if you can't get an 80-plus-year-old organization right, an organization that has web pages and books and leaders who speak English, how are you going to figure out who the moderates are from 160-plus militias in Syria, all of which emerged in the last five years, and which don't all have, you know, Facebook pages and, and websites and uh, decades' worth of literature on them. If we can't pick uh, the moderates from the radicals when we're dealing with known entities, I just have no confidence in our government's ability to do it when we're dealing with unknown entities. And by the way, in Syria, unlike in Egypt, where at least you could say the Muslim Brotherhood is a unified and not very fluid organization, uh, you know, these these groups in Syria are very fluid. One day you could find someone in one group, the next day they're in a 
far more radical group. So, so we're not even dealing in Syria with fixed entities. It's very difficult to pick the moderates, and I think it's just a call for humility on the part of our policymakers uh, before we arm anybody, before we try to pick winners. Let's really look at what's under the hood. And let's hope humility isn't in short supply, and hopefully we've been humbled by some of the decisions policy-wise that we've made over the last decade and a half. We've been talking to Eric Traeger, author of The Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. Just a final thought, Eric, one 30-second final thought to the folks on why they should pick up the book. Well, the book really traces uh, a, 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 an important period in Egyptian history, and I'd say world history, and the lesson of it is be careful what you wish for, that when you take a chance, when you try to overturn an existing system, it might not work out, it might leave things worse off, and it might make you worried and fearful of ever trying to pursue that kind of change again. And again, folks, that's Eric Traeger, author of Arab Fall, How the Muslim Brotherhood Won and Lost Egypt in 891 Days. Go to Amazon.com, order one, heck, order two. It makes a great gift and reads like a thriller. This is Our American Stories, and go to Our American Network for all that we do. 